0: All right. It's good to be here with you guys tonight. I counted a real, real privilege uh, to to have the the opportunity to be involved with this class, this series of classes. I love foundations. Uh, I've you know I think I've sat through um, most of the classes multiple times, and um, and I think that they're really important. My name is Pete Mishler, I guess you see that. Um, my wife Denise and I first came to the church in 1999 at the invitation of a friend, <clears throat> and um, a friend who actually pastors a church in Miami that we have a relationship with, Al Pino. And um, we lived in Brooksville at the time. And uh, and when we came here, we just um, we just felt like the Lord really wanted us to just, throw our lot in here and be a part of this church. And so we, it was the end of January of 99. And so we just immediately started commuting here to church and it didn't take us but a few months to divest ourselves of what we had going on in Brooksville, my business there and start over again here. And it was a wild and exciting time. We have four grown, we actually, even at that time, our four kids were grown already. And, uh, but we did come here with our youngest, um, and uh, the adventure of those early days was something to behold. And um, we thought that we were coming here because the Lord had called us to, you know, to, to give our lives here, to serving in, in this work. Just just like the Wilsons, who came actually at the very beginning, uprooted their lives in Orlando, and I think did Dave already teach? He's probably going to be teaching one, isn't he? I'm not sure. Okay, in a couple of weeks, um, and they were here at the very beginning. They uprooted their lives in Orlando to come in faith, to to start their lives again in King, to, in, in uh, Saint Petersburg in order to help with this church plant. You guys were here right in the early part too, weren't you? So we came along years later in '99. But really what happened is that as we began to, and we were mature Christians at that point in time, came to the Lord in 1970, um, but what God began to build into our lives was really amazing, and he did it through a series of crises and all kinds of stuff. So it's been exciting. It's been wonderful. We're so grateful to be a part of the church here and, again, to be here with you tonight. Um, We've been looking through this series at at messages that are, you know, that all start with the church, the church's mission and the church's, um, the church's message that, that you got uh, two weeks ago from Stephen. And then last week, Brian taught on the church's power, the Holy Spirit. And uh, we'll go on with this series tonight. We're going to be looking at the church's perspective. And the church's perspective is the centrality of God. Our purpose here is to demonstrate a proper biblical perspective that God is on his throne. He's at the center of all that exists. And the only way to rightly relate to reality is under his sovereign rule. Now, that may seem like almost like a throwaway statement for Christians. Yeah, yeah, God is on the center. He's at on the throne. He's at the center of all things. We know that. Yeah, we're Christians. We know that, right? And yet... Um, the shift from a man-centered presuppositions that rule in everything that we think and do in life to a shift that has a presupposition that God is at the center and it's about Him primarily. It's His story. And and a life that flows from that understanding, a life that is adjusted by that understanding, it's revolutionary. And... It's really not seen very commonly today, even in the church, really tragically. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight because the importance of that is so foundational in everything. And you're going to see what practical implications it has as it works out in our lives. Understanding that God is on the throne, at the center of all that exists, and everything Everything is for him and under his sovereign rule. And so before we dive into it further, let's, let's just pause and pray. Father, there's so much here. And, and we need for you, Lord, to open our hearts and our minds so that these truths can lay hold of us as Jesus Christ has laid hold of us. And that these truths can transform our thinking, as your scripture says in Romans 12, that we would be renewed by the transforming of our minds. That comes by your word, it comes by truth. And so we ask that you would shed light, O God, and cause us to lay hold of these things by faith and to respond in ways that help us to build new foundations in our lives. Even those of us who have been, who belong to you, have walked in your way, have followed after Jesus many years, let it, Lord, build freshly strong foundation on Jesus Christ in our lives so that out of that, Lord, would spring a fruitfulness, would spring a joy, would spring grace that would have a powerful effect, a lasting effect in all of our lives and in the lives of those that you put into our lives. We ask these things in Christ's name, who shed his blood for us. Amen. Well, there's two different perspectives on life. And we're going to talk about those how those two perspectives affect how we interpret the facts that we that we see in life, the things, the data that comes in in needs to be, kind of goes through a process, a you know, a, a computing process and a processing, and, and it's going to affect our behavior and our response when we, depending on how we process those things, the perspective, the interpretation that we have. And at Gulf Coast Community Church, we're endeavoring to build our worldview on a God-centered perspective. And this runs, this runs uh, contrary to human nature, and it runs way contrary to uh, current societal norms. But we believe that it's in the intent of Scripture to be understood in this light. We were, we were born and raised in a world, in a, in a culture, in, a, in an age where the presupposition is that it's all about me, baby. You know, life starts with man. I mean, that's not just something, a casual interpretation. That's actually built on an all surrounding philosophical, uh, uh, underpinning that is, that is taught, it's propagated in the media and in, and in our education system and in every other way propagated that, that it starts with us. And if, and if there's a God, it's because that God is the creation of our need for something. So, we're gonna, Take a look at this foundational truth. When we allow our worldview to be rebuilt on, on the basis that God is on the throne, then it transforms every area of, li- of our life. How we understand the gospel itself. How, how we understand our relationship with God. It has a, a transforming effect on our marriages, on child rearing, on facing adversity, on making large and small decisions on everything. A life built on bad theology can have devastating consequences, shipwrecked faith, disillusion, bitterness. I mean, it might seem self-evident to us that a truly Christian worldview must be built on the doctrine of the centrality of God. But it's not been the predominant perspective of the modern Western church at all. Modern evangelicalism has not been built on that. And you see much of it in the way that faith is shared and the messages that you hear. It's a subtle thing that that you really will begin to hear if you hadn't really paid notice of it before you begin to hear it more and more when you really have a specific decision that I am going to build my life on the central truth of the centrality of God. And <clears throat> um, it interprets how we we process information. And... Um, the interpretation affects how we respond, what our attitudes and behavior will be. While you and I as Christians are called by Scripture to live with a God-centered perspective in our worldview, it runs completely contrary to human nature. It's been ever since the fall of man Uh, Then, when Satan came in the garden and offered an alternative view of reality that would put man at the center of his own universe, right? A, a, A vile and evil and devastatingly destructive world view an alternate view of reality that he offered but man bought into it and we've lived with that ever since but uh, especially in the last you know 150 years or so through, from the enlightenment onward and from uh, and from and then and it accelerated as you got to darwin as you got to a scientific materialism that uh, that that has as its presupposition what you see is all there is That's all there is, stuff, material, the physical things, that's all there is. And so, what sense would there be for us to put anything at the center but ourselves? After all, everything that's out there is even even—even from the postmodern perspective, everything out there is, maybe it's really just what I'm somehow projecting from my own mind and all that crazy stuff, but... um, but the societies of humans have always operated with this man-centered perspective, and it's an enemy to the rule of the real God. And it's, uh, and, and so it's often unchallenged, again, in modern evangelicalism. Piper, uh, who we—and you have a handout, by the way— says, uh, and that you'll get to take home with you, so don't stop and read it now, please— but but one of the, the things he starts with there is that it's one of the great divides in American religious life today is that is whether God is going to be a means to grace or whether grace is going to be a, a means to God. Big difference. But you get to explore that. We'll explore that more as we go along. So... <clears throat> Um, we're going to make, uh, our study is going to start in the book of Revelation. It's going to be in the book of Revelation. It's based on the first, really the first five chapters. And obviously it's not going to be an exhaustive study of these first five chapters, but that's going to be the basis for our study tonight. And, uh, and, and then what we're going to do after, uh, after we, uh, look at those two, the, the fact that God is on His throne, the first point, uh, we're going to, we're going to, uh, look secondly at, at what it means to live with God at the center, okay? And, and in living with God at the center by trusting Him in trial, in the midst of trial, and by living our lives in submission to His will, and by living in constant fellowship with Him. And then the second, uh, or the third uh, main point that we're gonna look at tonight is, uh, where we're going is, is we're gonna take a look at some enemies of God-centered living, okay? And then the fourth thing that we'll finish with is what, Doing what a god centered perspective means in doing ministry, what it means for the way we approach ministry at gulf coast and and how that 's going to affect our whole diet and you know of, of what we do and so we 'll start with the book of Revelation, where John starts out in the first chapter saying, "I, John, your brother." And partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Patmos is a little island off of the coast, I mean, a tiny little island off the coast of what they call, what was called Asia, which would be modern day Turkey. And, um, and it was really banishment. It was, and, and and so he was, he was cast away from, Everything uh, during um, either the reign of Domitian or Nero. Most most theologians think the, the, during the the uh, probably the 90s, which had been the reign of De- the emperor Domitian. Um, some really, really good theologians, just a few of them, but they're really good theologians, think that it was during the time of Nero. Anyway, it was the thing is, it seemed that, that that the world had mastery over the church. I mean, you know, it had human authority over the church. They did with them what they wanted. They disposed of them as they pleased. That's what it looked like from a human perspective. I mean they didn 't even notice the church for decades, really too much the the roman rome didn 't and when and when Rome did take notice of the christian church they they decided to do away with it and they started to persecute them and they were having a lot of success in that in killing off the Christians and you know suppressing them and so forth, but they weren 't really having all that much success in the perspective of the eternal and it 's a lot like today where Really, the, the world um, wants to marginalize Christianity. Wants to marginalize us because it doesn't like our message and it assumes that it, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. If God isn't real, then how then Christianity is irrelevant as well, as all other religions as well. <clears throat> and so he was writing to the seven churches. It was actually Jesus who came and appeared to John and and said, I have a message t- to deliver to the seven churches, and the seven churches are in Asia, all there clustered in a little. Now, these aren't all the churches, because there was a church in Rome, there was a church in Corinth, there was a Roman you know church in Athens, there was uh, a church in, in uh, you know all these different places. So it wasn't all the churches, but he picked those seven churches, and those seven churches served as representative of all God's uh, churches throughout Uh, history from Pentecost till today. So we can say that the letter was for the church universal for all of us. And so one of those seven churches was the church in Pergamum. And and we see in 2.13 where he he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So we see in chapters 2 and 3 the events in the life of the church and the suffering from an earthly perspective. And we think when we see these things, well, God, what is going on? It's crazy. They were killing. I mean, it had to have been a shock when when James, the apostle James, the brother of John, was just in the early days of the church. All of a sudden, they just snatched him up and they killed him just like that. Boom. They killed him. It's like, oh, I didn't think that could happen. And then this stuff is just happening. They're killing the witnesses. They take John and just put him on the Isle of Patmos. Just like that. And it's like Satan is reigning. And and even though Satan was, his throne was in Pergamum, actually that was the place that was a center of, of emperor worship. Uh, and uh, And... They worshiped the emperors in, in Rome. No wonder they didn't like Christians. And, uh, so, but now, John, after seeing all this stuff from an earthly perspective, John's going to be caught up to seven, heaven so that we can see events of the universe from a heavenly perspective. We know that both perspectives are real, right? Hey, if you're suffering hardship and persecution, or as is happening in the world today, Christians are dying for the name of Christ. Christians are dying. La, uh, just in the last week, 150 Christians, at least, were killed in Nigeria. They were killed by by Muslim extremists. Why? Because they were Christians. That's all. Just because they were Christians. It's happening left and right. Um, how could a how could a puny, cruel tyrant like what's his name in North Korea, um, um, Kim Jong Young, Ing, the 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 chubby-cheeked son of the father one? <laughs> <laughs> Looks cute, but he's not cute. Okay, he just decides. He just decides he's going to. He's going to. Um, what's it called when you um, oh. kill? Now I mean, kill, kill. He he, he, he um, You know, firing squad, execute a bunch of Christians. They did it a couple of weeks ago. They had a mass execution in a little print, hidden. In prisons all around. Other times he just executes. He's executed Christians in in stadiums and made people come and be witnesses of, of public executions. Did you know that was happening today in our world? I mean, it's happening, and that's that's bad. It's an earthly perspective is real, where Satan has a throne, where Satan lives, and <clears throat> and it was happening then. Okay. But their lives in their city aren't really ruled by Satan's throne because that throne is subject to a higher throne. And there is a throne that rules over all other thrones, and that throne is the throne of God at the center of the universe. So if you're looking at the evil that is happening and thinking it's gained ascendancy and it's in control and you're wondering, God, are you paying attention? Have you lost control? What's going on here? I'd say that the suffering saints... Uh, of the original, the original recipients, these seven churches, especially if it was in Domitian's reign when he had actually declared worship uh, Christianity to be illegal empire wide, and uh, they were suffering. They were illegal, and uh, so, <clears throat> but but now John is caught up into heaven. Both perspectives are real. The heavenly one is more real. Let's take a look at this. God is on his throne starting in Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. That was Jesus who appeared to him first on the Isle of Patmos. Said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, look. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Sounds good. I don't know what that that is. But and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around. And now and then it says around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And then we see again in Revelation 5, chapter 6, verse 6, uh, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then we see in, in chapter 5, verse 11, it's not Romans 5, where am I? In chapter 5 verse 11 we see, I looked, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And then we see in verse 13 we see, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Jesus wanted john to see what was really going on and who was at the very center of all things and he wanted him to report it so that we would know so that the, the seven churches would know that we would know who it is that's on the throne and who is at the center we see in chapter four and five that the word thronos used 19 times and all but a couple of them refer to the throne of god and, and we don't really, in our perspective, I mean, in our age, we don't really, really understand, you know, what that what that picture of a throne is communicating. Uh, but this is not the Oval Office, okay? This is a throne. And, and we think of, no matter what presidents may think of themselves, <laughs> they are not kings, all right? We elect them. We kick the bums out. They're in the office for a while, and they have checks and balances. They can only do... Uh, what other official elected officials allow them to do according to do according to the to the uh, Constitution? This is something that that came, you know, this understanding came uh, several hundred years ago. Now, you know, Rex Lex, not I mean, uh, yeah, Rex Lex, not Lex Rex. The word, the law is king, not the king is law, and and so that's what the understanding we rule under. But but God is on the throne. He rules. He makes the decisions. Nobody argues with it. He carries it out. He's sovereign. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. All we see down here is the footstool. That's all we see. But the decisions are made and the decrees originate in heaven. James White, author and apologist, says, the slide mark, I believe one of the reasons modern men struggle with the plain biblical truths of old is because so few of us any longer have a king. Royal power and authority was fundamental when the scriptures were written, and often the power of God to properly rule over his own creation is likened to the power of a king to rule over his realm. Since most of us do not bow to a king, we see little reason why we should bow to God. Psalm 135 says, The Lord does whatever he pleases. Or whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. See, when we say that God is at the, the uh, is on the throne at the center of all creation, what we're really saying is that God directs all things. He's sovereign. He reigns. He rules. So he's not passively sitting on the the throne. He is reigning and ruling. Isaiah fourteen twenty six and twenty seven say. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord Almighty has purpose, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Why? Now, here's the question. Why does God rule over all things and direct all things? It's because God created all things. And God sustain all things, sustains all things. And therefore, God rightfully rules over all things. He made all things. He sustains all things. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And this is Christ, actually, it's speaking of the second person of the Trinity. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Romans 11 says in Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. To what end does God direct all things? God directs all things in such a way that they render glory to him. This stands, you see, this stands at irreconcilable odds with what we see in our old natures as the purpose of everything. To render glory to moi. Me and and the and it's that conflict is it's irreconcilable. We end up having to bow in that battle. <laughs> okay, so in Revelation four uh, in the in chapters four and five we have a picture. We have at the center of the picture God's throne. Mark, um, we have at the at the center God on His throne, and where we see in chapter four. Um, at once, um, I, uh, in verse 1, at once I was in the Spirit, and, and at the... and uh, No, it should be uh, verse 2. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then around the throne, we see four living creatures... From verse 6, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And right around them, we see 24 elders, okay? And between the throne and the four living creatures, uh, and among the elders, see, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. And around the 24 elders, we see the angelic host. And around the throne, on each side of the... um, um, We see that again in chapter 5. I looked and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels number myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Something like hundreds of millions. But uh, around that then we see everything else. Every living creature. I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne... And the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and, and might forever and ever. Now, can you think of anything that's outside of, that's not included in the categories just named? Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all that is in them. So we're included in one of those groupings, Right. Yes, we're all included in the, one of those groupings and you see right at the very center who is it that's there. God. He made all things. He sustains all things. He directs all things from his throne in such a way that all things ultimately bow down and render glory to him. That is the rest of the story that John needed to see and that we need to see. When, when Pilate asked Jesus if he was a king, remember he said what he said. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. See, any petty tyrant can put people in subjugation to himself. We've seen that throughout history, haven't we? And, and uh, this doesn't prove their greatness, though. Tyrants have come and gone since the beginning of time. Where is Domitian today, the emperor Domitian, or Nero, or the other rest of those Roman emperors? They're gone. They sought to eradicate Christianity. They thought it would be no problem eradicating Christianity. It was like a guttering candle, you know, when the wind's blown and the candle just, the the, the you know, the flame kind of gutters and goes down, dips low, and you think, oh, it's about to be snuffed out. That's what Christianity looked like in the Roman world, especially when they decided to take notice of Christianity. But where are they today? God is on the throne. Um, I mean... And Jesus said, my, my, my kingdom is not of this world. Isn't it amazing how he extends his rule? Okay, the the difference between Islam and Christianity is that Islam is essentially a a political movement that, that spread by taking over different lands and, and then extending its, its dominion over the people of that place. But Christianity was born right in the middle of this, un, kind of unnoticed in the middle of this big metropolis, Metropolitan, cosmopolitan world of Rome that took no notice of it. Does that feel at all familiar to you? By the way, I mean, you think, "Oh my God, goodness, Christianity is losing its influence in America, and what's going to happen?" And no, no, God is on the throne, and Christianity is not in some sort of imminent danger. Christendom may be in some sort of imminent danger, just as it was in the time of of, uh, the Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, when he saw the Roman Empire crumbling and and it looked like Christianity would go the way with it. Oh, except for one thing. God wanted to to convert the, the heathen that were taking over. They became Christians. So Christianity wasn't, God's rule was not in any kind of danger in that situation. Um, totalitarians have sought to even extend their control beyond mere physical subjugation to the control of even thought. But they've failed. Only God has the power to bring a human heart under His rule. Each individual under the rule of Christ. Isn't that amazing how He rules? So the question that remains is how do I relate everything going on in my life in such a way so that it renders glory to God? What are the practical outworkings, implications of this? Well, we do it by being informed by a God-centered perspective in our lives, by having our thinking transformed over a lifetime of re-informing ourselves of God's perspective. And so we're going to look at these three ways to to live with God at the center. And the first one is... By trusting God in the midst of trial. Now, what's going on in your life today is not a surprise to God. And I, was, I, I so appreciated Loon's message from James one this, today that reminded us of this. When we, what we see happening, we don't have to be overwhelmed with it. We don't have to be anxious because God is in control. Now, this doesn't mean that He's going to work out things to serve our ends, right? No. God is not a means to an end. Living with God at the center means supplanting our goals and agenda and living for His. So we see um, in Revelation chapter 5, going back to that, verses 1 through 5, I saw at the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is that scroll that he's seeing? That scroll really is the unfolding of history, okay? It's the unfolding of all the events that are going to be taking place. It's what happens. It's just basically what happens on the footstool here and, and the unfolding of the things that we see through the whole book of Revelation. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I mean, he's weeping from the perspective of saying, God, everything is messed up. They're killing your leaders. They're scattering your sheep they've put I'm powerless I'm, I'm in banishment on this little island and it looks like everything is falling apart that we've been fighting for and, and all the how is it going to end what's going to happen he's weeping that no one is found worthy to open the scroll and look into it but then one of the elders said to me weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But now let's look at those seven seals and see what we're 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 looking at. See, the lamb was the only one open uh, uh, available to open the seals. But what are those seals? Well, we we see um one of the seven seals is a a rider on a white horse with a bow, a bow and uh and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So we see uh, that we see that he has the power to lead his church forth to conquer by spreading the gospel, spread, sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel throughout the whole world. And then we have the red horse that is war. That that's. That comes up bright red its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword and then the third seal is uh, is a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand and and that's famine Uh, and the fourth seal is a pale horse and that's death so it's not just the bringing of the gospel that he has power over but he has over all power over all these seemingly terrible things that we might attribute to the devil. Bad things, famine, um, disease, death, war. But none of these things, from, from a hurt, which from an earthly perspective would be coming from, the, uh, from his throne, but rather from the throne of Satan, are beyond the control of the Lamb. Nothing can be done outside of the Lamb opening the seal. Again, history is from him, through him, and history is rendering glory to him. History is his story. We see God's footstool. And this is a quote from William Hendrickson, who wrote a wonderful book on prayer, which I think this is from. Um, We see God's footstool. Let us not forget his throne. To be sure we say that to them that love God, all things work together for good. But do we really believe it? Sometimes we speak and act as if the control of events and the destiny of the world rested in the hands of men instead of in the hand of God. Do you worry about the economy? Do you worry about what's going to happen with your kids, with our country, with different things? Everyone has areas where they feel like, I mean, you are worried about what's going on. Well, trusting God is the opposite of trusting in ourselves or what man can do for us. Trusting in God faith is about where we go with our fears and our troubles. First Peter um, chapter three says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. In verse 14, it says that. But set it in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Now, this is not about being passive, though. See, when we when we see the state of things, when we cry out, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we're really in the heart of what this is about because what Peter is basing this on in verse 14, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set about Christ as the Lord is on that first part in verse 12, where it says for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Pray. We need not fear what the world fears when we're going to Christ, living with Christ at the center of our lives the foundation for a God-centered life is a God-dependent prayer life. It is there that we bring our fears. If we say that we trust in God, but we're not praying, that's, that's not really trusting. What that is really is kind of just like a sort of lazy escapism. It's a passivity. It's almost like kind of a Hindu uh, you know, fatalism uh, that says, what is is what is. No, that's that's not what trusting in Him and seeing that He's in control is about. That's why we go to Him in prayer. Um, truly trusting God starts with the gospel. If you think about Romans chapter eight, where Paul says he did not He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? I found it in, I found it really helpful in the midst of trial to ask myself to ask others when I'm in the opportunity to, to speak to them biblically, to be able to speak to the the fears uh, that, that might be going on in the midst of trial, I've often said this uh, to myself and to others. What's the greatest problem that you have? What's the greatest problem that you have? And what's the worst thing that could happen? See, the greatest problem that we have, that we could possibly have, is that we're separated from God by our sin and under His judgment. And we couldn't do anything about that. Nothing. But God in His grace supplied the the solution to that need when Jesus shed His blood for us on the cross and forgave us of all of our sins and reconciled us to God and forever sealed us from condemnation and from judgment. So uh, the greatest problem we have has already been taken care of. Everything else is just details. It's just details. Cast all your anxiety, and it says in, verse, uh, in chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And we see a quote from Charles Spurgeon, should be on the overhead. The late, great Charles Spurgeon the prince of preachers, there is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty under the most adverse circumstances in the most severe troubles. They believe that sovereignty both ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of His own hands, the throne of God, and His right to sit upon that throne. Okay, y'all doing okay so far? Now, the second way that we that we look at living uh, with this uh, sense that of of living with God at the center of all things is <clears throat> by living our lives in submission to His will. See. While we'll often admit on a Sunday morning that God is sovereign, God is at the center of the universe, we usually function as if we're at the center of the universe. In our sinful nature, we see a man-centered universe, a me-centered universe. And when we are me-centered, everything and everyone must serve us, food, cars, others. Why? Well, because in our mind, our need is more important than what God requires. And that's just the way we're, we are. We're, we're like lunatics, Addicted to this crazy destructive preference of self, and you know it's it is destructive. When we're man centered, we're likely to acknowledge God, but for the reason that God is there to serve me, God is going to bless me. God exists for my good. I can have a sinful worldview and add God to it. Just make Him the one who does me the most good. He's wonderful to me. If we're God centered, He becomes my reward. He is my reward. My great treasure, the ends rather than the means. Thanking him is a priority. Loving others is a priority. Being content is a priority. Why? Because these things are the things that he requires. When I'm not getting the food I want, then being content glorifies God because that's what he has required of me in that situation. And being thankful to him for the fact that I'm eating, having food and clothing. If God is at the center of our lives when others wrong us, we do not focus on how we'll, we've been wrong, but rather on how we're to respond in a way that will honor him. Now, this is this is not just like, okay, we go out of here now and this is the way we're going to be all the time. It takes a lifetime of change. We begin to understand conflict differently, though, when, and this has really been huge in my life. We, we understand conflict differently. Instead of seeing conflict as an evil that must be avoided because it makes me miserable... We see that, and, and it must be avoided at all costs. We start to see that God actually even uses conflict um, to bring sanctification and reconciliation for ourselves and others. Because you see, conflict is usually just the symptom of a of sin, a sin problem. The conflict isn't the the sin. The conflict is the consequence of the sin, and so the conflict can actually be a tool from God. What um, so? What if I? What if I? The negative situation that I find myself in is not even primarily about me at all, but about what God intends to do in the life of the other person involved. What, when I am living with a God-centered perspective, I place myself in a position to be a peacemaker, a servant of the gospel of reconciliation. When persecuted, I can actually rejoice. When mistreated, I am enabled to entrust myself to God. When sinned against, forgiveness is actually possible. And I can ask, what is the God-glorifying response? When we see that our marriage, even, our marriage is not firstly about our spouse or ourselves or our happiness, but about God. That's right. Our, our marriage is about God. Then it puts conflicts and differences and everything in a different light. And same with our children. When we see that our children, that that God is at the center of our child rearing and, and for them, that they're not the center of our homes or our lives and they're not for themselves, and we're not for them. We're all for God, and our bosses, our our parents, our siblings, every relationship in life. It transforms those relationships when we're when we're um, adjusting our understanding and our perspective to a God centered perspective. Now, the third way we live with a God centered perspective is by living in constant fellowship with Him. First Thessalonians five should be up on the wall. It says. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. While the believer will undergo many sorrows and troubles, there is a joy that we're to have in all of life because Christ has conquered. Knowing the ultimate outcome of the events, trusting his invisible work, we're able, even commanded, to rejoice always, to live life in a state of grumblings, to live in a me-centered world. Of course, we don't immediately go to the suffering believer who happens to be grumbling and start telling them to stop. That's not a very effective thing to do. Rather, we bear their burdens. We grieve with them. We lead by example. We pray with them in a God-centered way. Don't, don't try and talk people out of their suffering or complaining. Come alongside them and help them bring their troubles to the throne of grace that they may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. My wife is so... Uh, been in such an important role in my life in doing that and reminding me, Pete. Take people. People don't need to hear what you have to say. Uh, President company excluded, of course, because <laughs> <This, I, laughs> I'm just I'm just a you know channel and stuff here. <laughs> uh, but but rather, um, pray pray with them. I mean, so many times she's when she's with me, I've gotten that little nudge. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. We could actually do something about this. We could go to the throne of grace. And so I really appreciate that about her uh, reminder. Pete, did you pray with them? I hate when I have to admit, no, Denise, I did not pray with them. Because <laughs> it's just like forgetting the main thing. All right. The reason the believer is aware of this invisible work of our Lord, it's rooted in our constant dependency on Him, expressed in prayer. We're to pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean that we're never not praying, but rather that prayer is our default mode, that we're regularly and often often turning to the Lord in prayer. And, And not only are we calling on Him, but this often grows into a life of gratitude to Him. Notice that the three commands that were given in the Scripture are all centered in prayer. The last scripture that we'd had. Yeah, see the the three commands that were to rejoice, that were to pray, and were to give things. This is God-centered fellowship and dependence and and this kind of fellowship and dependence is God's stated will for our lives. And this is really walking by the spirit. It's walking by faith and it's the source of God-centered living. Well, to summarize uh, everything up to this point, God is on his throne, at the center of all exists, that exists, and the only way to rightly relate to reality is under his sovereign rule. Now we're going to real quickly look at some enemies of God-centered living. First of those is simple human nature. Our hearts rage against the rule of God, as it says in Psalm 2, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. The folly of the man that denies God is, is evident in this. When he prospers, he says, and as it says in Deuteronomy, oh, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. And then uh, when he suffers, he asks, uh, as it says in Proverbs 19, how can God allow this? Uh, you know, uh, I mean, he says, how can God allow this? It says in Proverbs 19, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. So as believers, we're no longer to live with this kind of empty-headed thinking we can't we can't allow ourselves to to our lives to be dictated by the lie that we are at the center it takes a lifetime of practice it's like strengthen, straightening a, a tree with a curved trunk but we have to make the practice of speaking to our hearts instead of allowing our hearts to speak to us that's something i'm often saying to my kids and grandkids too when i'm counseling when i'm in counseling what i'm saying to myself too is It's time to start speaking to my heart the truths of Scripture instead of allowing my heart to speak to me as I rehearse the wrong that somebody did me or I rehearse over this or that. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, uh, Paul says to the Ephesians, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. We must constantly go to the gospel, to Christ, and reorient our lives. The gospel orients our lives to the centrality of God in the universe, which brings us this, the gospel brings us or this mention of the gospel brings us to the the second enemy of God-centered living, and that is a false gospel, which really is no gospel at all. And that's a man-centered gospel. You've got to beware of this. They adopt the assumptions of the secular world. And modern religion centers around man and not on God. The question seems to be, how can I benefit, or how can God benefit me? But the biblical question is, since God created me, what is due him from me? what pleases and gives glory to our Creator. The real gospel begins with God and what is due Him. The real gospel does not, as Piper has said, as I uh, said earlier from the handout that you have, make God a means of grace, but correctly poses grace as a means of gaining God. <clears throat> I'm going to read a long quote from J.I. J. Packer with you. You can read along. But it's, it's worth it because he says it very well. Without realizing it, we have during the past century, and he said this probably 20 years ago now or better, maybe 30, 25. Without realizing it, we have during the past century bartered, the, that it's the biblical gospel, for a substitute product, which though it looks similar enough in points of detail, is as a whole a decidedly different thing. Hence our troubles, for the substitute product does not answer the ends for which the authentic gospel has in past days proved itself so mighty. Why? We would suggest that the reason lies in its own character and content. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because this is not primarily what it's trying to do. One way of stating the difference between it and the old gospel is to say that it is too exclusively concerned to be helpful to man. To bring peace, comfort, happiness, satisfaction, and too little concern to glorify God. The old gospel was helpful too, more so indeed than is the new. But, so to speak, incidentally, for its first concern was always to give glory to God. It was always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty and mercy and judgment, a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord on whom man depends for all good, both in nature and in grace. Its center of reference was unambiguously God. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. This is just to say that the old gospel was religious in a way that the new gospel is not. Whereas the chief aim of the old gospel was to teach me- people to worship God, the concern of the new seems limited to making them feel better. The subject of the old gospel was God, his ways with men. The subject of the new is man and the help God gives him. There is a world of difference. The whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. So says J.I. Packer, and I say amen to that. When man is at the center, truth is Secondary lifestyle and our needs are the utmost importance the good news makes no sense without beginning with God and the bad news is where we truly stand with him when God is at the center truth is absolute listen the gospel makes no sense to somebody who does who doesn't understand that God is I mean if you're not approaching it from that standpoint good news God loves you and he's forgiven you of your sins really I don't need forgiveness God loves it's God's job to love everybody, isn't it? You know so that the the gospel is there's a groundwork that needs to be laid even before the gospel can be effectively shared in in, in most cases. Have you ever wondered about the anger that's directed at the church over issues uh, like women's roles, uh, you know men and women's uh, feminism, the homosexual lifestyle, sex outside of marriage, reproductive rights? Um, we can never make headway on these issues. And some of you may have some real questions about that and where we stand on those things, but we can never make headway on any of those issues without going back to presuppositions. See what I'm saying? Without a God-centered perspective, our arguments don't even make any sense because we've lost the power of the gospel. If you're not centering, starting with a God-centered perspective, then what do you say to somebody about why, why it's not okay for them to marry the man that they love? Him, they happen to be a man. Well, what, what do you have to say? If man is at the center, then why shouldn't he? But if God is at the center, then you have a, pre, a, a you have something to talk about, and, and 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 those kinds of issues. And so that's that's where a lot of the anger comes from because of presupposition that man is at the center, and what he wants is what rules. In in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. We need to contend for the biblical gospel so that we can live the biblical gospel and advance the biblical gospel. This is essential for building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next now, remember this lamb is at the center of the throne. We see in chapter 9 when we we've looked that the, the lamb came and took the scroll. And then we see again in Revelation chapter 7. We see that the lamb is at the center. And uh, and and he's and they're, they're bowing down. They're throwing themselves down before him. The lamb is in the midst of the throne. Will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And... <clears throat> Why is it that the lamb is at the center of the throne? Well, for one thing, it's absolute... I mean, if you want to chase away the guys that you're... And I don't want want to chase them away, but if you want to chase away the guys knocking at your door that don't believe that Jesus is God, just take them to Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 7 and how they're all throwing themselves down, worshiping the lamb, and he's at the center of the throne. Guess what? The only one on the throne is God. So the lamb is God. And uh, but why is he at the center of the throne? Well, even though God is at the center of the throne universe, we failed to give him glory. Though God is due glory, we have lived for ourselves. But because of the lamb, God can give us mercy in his rule rather than the wrath we deserve. Because of the lamb, we can confidently know that God is ruling the universe for the good of those who love him and have been bought by the blood of the lamb. So real quickly now, we're just going to wrap up. We've got just a few minutes left. I'm not over an hour yet. <clears throat> Real quickly on how this affects ministry in the church here. First of all, this truth affects how we interpret scripture. See, the Bible is God-centered. He's the focus, not man. By by this, I mean basically three things. God is the main character in the Bible. And this is where, if you got the quote up, Anne McQueen, McCain. God is the, The center of the Bible, uh, God is the main character in the Bible, God is the main topic of the Bible, and God is the author of the Bible. So, and this is, by the way, uh, someone, do we use that, her material? Or have we used her material in in, uh, children's ministry? She's a children's ministry author. Really good stuff. But anyway, so the Bible is God-centered. The Bible's not primarily about how man gets along in the world. It's not primarily uh, about those kinds of things. It's about God. The universe, the universe he created to glorify him, how man has broken God's law and rebellion against him, how God is going about redeeming his people for the sake of magnifying his wondrous grace. This perspective affects the questions that we ask of, of scripture as we read it. What does this reveal about God and his redemptive purpose? It affects how we teach the scriptures. It even affects how the preaching diet is planned at Gulf Coast and other churches like ours. We teach through the scriptures, because they're God's declaration of what the church needs. Not just using the Bible cherry-picking proof texts, uh, but by teaching what it is teaching. So it's expository preaching. It's laboring to make sure that the intended message of the text, the intended redemptive focus of the text, is the intended message and focus of the message that is preached. Okay? See how that might differ from just picking a Proof text for something that you want to preach, and and even the children's church curriculum is driven by the centrality of God. Um, do you want do you want to have secure kids that know what their proper place is in the world, and really secure, good functioning, you know, balanced kids? Start with keeping God at the center, not them but teaching them that God is at the center. This next quote from Ann McCain says, Our Sunday school teaching should be God-centered because the Bible itself is God-centered. To be consistent with Scripture, we must focus on what it focuses on, namely God. When we're God-centered in our teaching, we give children knowledge of God, and knowledge of God is the most wonderful thing we can offer them. And then secondly, it affects how we do ministry in so many different ways, Uh, like our worship music. It's to be God-centered and God-glorifying. Choosing music is not based on rhythm or beat or musical preferences, but on content. The content must be God-glorifying. And you notice that it is very gospel-centered, cross-centered. Felt needs in the community do not drive what we choose to do. The gospel drives the choices for ministry. The gospel teaches us that people's greatest need in, in Christ is Christ and to see God for who he is. This is more important than what they um, may fill out on a survey that they want from a church. God directs his church. So, I I have heard R.C. Sproul say, um, Do you want your church to be relevant? It will always be relevant if people meet with God. So... That's it. God's on his throne at the center of all things. And the only way to rightly relate in the universe is under his sovereign rule. Thank you guys for your attention. Do you have any questions about any of that or about how it affects ministry or our, our lives? That, that essential truth.